I would like to hope that at the core of us all is a desire to live a rich and meaningful life. A life plumped with purpose, connection and satisfaction. The pursuit to achieve this rich and meaningful life is often misinterpreted though as a quest for constant happiness and avoidance of anything that's painful or unpleasant. You and I both know though, life doesn't quite work that way. As we transverse the journey of which is our life, we will encounter all sorts of barriers in the form of unpleasant thoughts, images, feelings, sensations, urges and memories. These can be thought of as unpleasant private experiences. Acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, is a mindfulness-based behavioural therapy that challenges the ground rules of most Western psychology. Uniquely, ACT does not have symptom reductions as its goal. It's based on the view that an ongoing attempt to get rid of symptoms actually helps form those clinical disorders in the first place. As soon as we label an inner private experience as a symptom, it immediately tags it as pathological, something we should just try and get rid of. In ACT, the aim is to transform your relationships with your difficult inner private experiences, learning to perceive them as harmless and transient psychological events, even when they're uncomfortable. ACT, therefore, is a good abbreviation because this therapy is about taking effective action guided by our deepest values. I'm Jackie McGuire, and this is my podcast, Mind Brew. I'm a clinical psychologist with a passion for science communication. What does that mean? Well, it means I not so secretly love researching psychological studies, translating them into easy to understand concepts, and providing practical strategies to optimize personal well being, work, and relationships. Put simply, Mind Brew has been created to help people live the good life. In this episode, I speak to Dr. Russ Harris, the Australasian face of ACT. Since 2005, Russ has authored nine ACT books, facilitated more than 600 two-day workshops, and provided ACT training for over 35,000 health professionals, including therapists, coaches, counsellors, doctors, and psychologists. His most well-known book, The Happiness Trap, is now the most widely translated ACT book in the world, with over 1 million copies sold worldwide and editions in over 30 languages. Russ and I experienced a few of our own unwanted barriers in the road to creating this podcast. For reasons completely outside both of our control, the date and time of this recording had to change, resulting in one baby Maguire babysitterless. I had a decision to make, postpone Russ and run the risk of never matching diaries again, or forge ahead baby in tow. I chose the latter. The result? You will hear three human beings contributing to this conversation and much laughter from Russ and I. The honest result? You have an amazing guest and a host with split attention. I'm pretty sure you'll pick this up. I wasn't on top of my game today being mum and worker at the same time. But instead of profoundly apologising, which is my natural instinct, I'm going to take advice from Russ 
and practice self-compassion. This is life in its raw and complex form. Enjoy the episode and my daughter's giggles. Well, thank you for joining me on, on Mind Brew. It's uh, so lovely to have you here. And for our listeners, it's me and Russ and the baby today because she's decided to wake up. So should you hear oohs and ahs and gars in the background, it's uh, the three of us today. Um, Russ, <laughs> as, a, as a clinical psychologist, I have followed your work closely myself and used it with clients over years when I was when I was seeing people one-on-one I don't really do that anymore but I've been a really close follower of your work and you know I think it's uh the, the skills and strategies that you teach and you share are really helpful for people when the world is uncontrollable <laughs> so, so I thought oh. to start with it would be really lovely if you could share what ACT is and who you are and I say that uh I say ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, because it's not ACT, as so many people get confused with, but it's, but it's ACT. So who are you, Russ, and what's ACT? Uh, well, gosh. <laughs> uh, so ACT, let's start with ACT, is, uh, uh, as you said, it's short for Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. It's an, an odd-sounding name for a therapy, but the title reflects a key message, accept what's out of your personal control and commit to action that improves your life. And really, there's kind of two strands to this therapy. It uses uh, mindfulness skills to help you take the impact out of difficult thoughts and feelings and emotions, let them flow through you without sweeping you away, and using mindfulness skills to help you engage in life and focus on what's important and be present with your loved ones and appreciate it when life's giving you the good stuff, but learn how to focus on what's important when life is challenging and difficult. Um, And it involves uh, the second strand of therapy is really living your values, getting clear about your your core values, how you want to treat yourself, how you want to treat others, how you want to treat the world around you, what sort of person you want to be, and using those values to guide your actions, guide the things you do as you go through your day, basically. Uh, So basically, the aim of ACT is to build a rich and meaningful life while making room for all the difficult thoughts, feelings, emotions that are an inevitable part of such a life. So, Russ, and when I hear I? you say I'm, that, I'm, oh, I'm butting okay. in. Sorry. See, this is what I do. I just have a question and, but, I, butt, and I butt in. So I'm going to butt in for a second <laughs> to say, before you introduce yourself, when you listen to that <laughs> statement, I would hope that all therapy aims to support people to form a rich and meaningful life and learn skills to manage the tricky bits. So how does ACT in that sense differ from other therapies in your view? Well, you know, I guess uh, a lot of therapies would not state that as their primary aim. Uh, A lot of therapies, the aim is to reduce symptoms of uh, kind of um, mental illness. uh, To uh, I, I haven't the very few of any therapies would say our aim is to build a rich and meaningful life while accepting all the pain that inevitably goes with it. I've I've never 
there, there could be, but there's about 400 different types of therapy out there, but I haven't heard any other model of therapy state that as their primary claim at the top of all their websites and books and so forth. So, so most therapies are certainly around giving you tools and skills to help you cope better with life, but the aim is more on symptom reduction, on reducing pain, suffering, and symptoms of illness. Uh, very few therapies have values as the foundation of the model. Uh, you know, your, your values are your, your heart's deepest desires for how you want to treat yourself and others and the world around you. You know, when you look back from your deathbed at the life you lived, what you put into the world, what you stood for. Um, and so, you know, ACT is one of the only models that kind of has that as the bedrock or the foundation of the work that you do. Although ACT has had a, an influence on other models of therapy, and we are starting to see values creep into other models as well. But, Isn't uh, it said the- that the majority of therapy is focused on a deficit model? rather than what are your strengths, what do you want, and how do you build this meaningful life? I think that's so sad, Russ. Uh, It is sad, I I think. I I think, uh, you know, basically around about middle of the last century, psychiatrists and psychologists started working very hard to categorize human mental illness into a a bunch of uh, subsets. And they produced a a book called the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders, came out in the 1950s. And that has had a a huge influence on, on, uh, on psychotherapy and different models of therapy. Uh, and so many models have kind of taken these DSM disorders, these mental disorders, depression, anxiety, and seen that the aim is to kind of reduce the symptoms of this disorder, you know, um, and uh, ACT takes a very different stance. Uh, ACT assumes that, uh, you know, if you're going to live a full human life, you're going to feel the full range of human emotions. You're going to have lots of painful emotions just as part of everyday living. And your mind has evolved in such a way that it just, it generates negative thoughts. Negative thoughts are are normal and natural and everyone has them. And, uh, you know, uh, everyone struggles, everyone suffers. Suffering is part of, of living a full human life. It's not a sign of abnormality or something wrong with you or something weird about you. Thank you. And now now enabling you to introduce yourself to everyone and I'll stop butting in. (laughs) Who are you, Russ? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, so uh, I guess... That's a big question. Uh, how long have we got? Um, uh, you know, I'm a, a, I used to be a GP uh, and I got very, as a GP, I got very interested in the psychology, psychological side of health and well-being, and progressively over the years lost interest in the, in the physical side of it, and writing prescriptions and all that kind of stuff. And eventually I changed careers and became a therapist and explored a number of different models of therapy. And when I discovered ACT, uh, which is, gosh, back in 2004, I just instantly fell in love with it and went to the USA to train with the folks who created it, particularly Stephen Hayes, uh, professor of psychology over in Reno, Nevada, who who started ACT. And uh, I brought it back to Australia and wrote a number of books about it, uh, the best known being The Happiness Trap, which is available in all good bookstores and also in some of the crappy bookstores. Uh, and, good sales uh, pitch. 
uh, and uh, I guess you know the the happiness trap kind of took off uh, and appealed to people and. Now I spend a lot of time, um, you know, teaching therapists how to do act um, and writing more books. Well, our, our task then, Russ, in this next 40 minutes or so is how can we get as much as your brain on what you know about act and how to help people live this rich, meaningful life to navigate, as you say, the ups, the ups and downs, the emotions that come and go in quite practical, hands-on techniques. Well, that's how I feel about act. It's not kind of all, co- all cognitive, which... Oh, we are going to have fun today with a baby on this podcast for us. Um, you know, I think when we look at some of the, the other strategies, it really is all cognitive, like CBT, which is, you know, you're having these unhelpful thoughts or you're having these unhelpful emo- emotions. How can you just rearrange them or how can you just try and think differently about them? And, you know, I, I have found personally for people especially that are uh, very bright or can do cognitive till the cows come home the emotions don't shift with that and that's quite difficult uh hello Ola, from a therapeutic point of view and that's where I find some of your act there um you know therapy techniques are quite different from that yep um it, it's well it's it probably worth saying that the, there's two different meanings of CBT. So, so you're referring to one very specific model of CBT uh, that has a, a, a big, which is what most people mean when they mean CBT. They're referring to that model based on Beck's cognitive therapy. But there is another meaning of CBT, which is an umbrella term uh, that covers about 40 different models of cognitive behavioral therapies. So if you went to a, a world conference on CBT, you would see many different models that come under that umbrella. And in fact, ACT would come under that umbrella of cognitive behavioral therapies, but it's quite different from the specific model you've mentioned. There's nothing in ACT about challenging thoughts or trying to uh, you know, control your feelings. Um, it's more. <laughs> uh, I'm laughing at your your little baby there. Uh, She's currently so, chewing shoelaces, but I'm going to be a good yeah. mother and let her do that, Russ. <laughs> um, I think one of the things I fell about with, uh, fell in love with that was that I had tried those kind of you know more popular approaches of challenging your thoughts and challenge you know replacing more positive ones, and I, I found them personally quite frustrating. You know, it's like. Uh, uh, these negative thoughts just keep coming back again and again and again. And they, you spend a lot of time in your head kind of just debating with yourself, you know, it's, um, uh, so in the act approach, we, we, uh, we take a different stance. It's like, Oh, okay. Oh, here are those thoughts again. Ah, oh, is that what you're telling me? Oh, here's my mind telling me the, I'm not good enough story. Oh, I've heard this one a few times, you know, um, uh, so there's a kind of attitude of, uh, uh, flexibility towards one's thoughts. You don't have to fight or struggle with them and you don't have to try and push them away and you don't have to try and run away from them. You start to see your thoughts for what they are. Thoughts are, are words and pictures, combinations of words and pictures. And we don't have to debate whether they're true or false or get upset whether they're positive or negative. The big question we're asking in ACT is when these words and pictures pop up inside my head, 
are they helpful? If I let them guide what I do with my arms and my legs, will that help me to be the sort of person I want to be, do the things I want to do, live the sort of life I want to live? If so, then let's use those words and pictures. Let them guide what I do. But if not, let's learn how to just kind of let them come and stay and go in their own good time without getting caught up in them, without fighting them. Um, and uh, the, the technical jargon name for that is diffusion or cognitive diffusion. I was just about to say what you're talking about is fusion and diffusion, Russ, um, which I think many people can visualize that are you stuck to your thoughts and feelings or can you unstick yourself from them? And, and that unsticking, as you say, isn't changing them because your brain as for thousands of years or a long time generated, you know, our brains have generated things to keep us safe and to keep us alive. Um, and so what's kind of the most effective route sitting there and trying to change a brain that's evolved over a very long time? Or can you try and change how you respond to those thoughts and feelings and kind of unstick yourself from them? Yeah, well, you know, so that's a very good point you make, you know, it's so our species Homo sapiens, you know, has probably been around for at least 250,000 years, uh, you know, and if there ever was a, a caveman or a cave woman that was Mr. and Mrs. Positive Thinker, always looking on the bright side, they didn't live very long. You know, that wasn't your ancestor. You, you came from the one that was always on the lookout for things that could hurt or harm them, you know, oh, that rustling sound in the bushes, that might be a saber-toothed tiger. Let's kind of step back and be cautious. Because even if they were wrong 99 times out of 100, the one time they were right, it saved their life and they lived long enough to be able to, you know, have children and pass on their genes to the next generation. So we've got this, uh, you know, as a cave person, as a stone age man or woman, you constantly needed to be on the lookout for things that could hurt or harm you. Is there a bear in the back of that cave? Is that shadow on the horizon? Is that a friend or a foe? Um, and, uh, and we've inherited that. Uh, we have this natural tendency to think negatively and no positive thinking is going to stop that. I forget to tell you this on positive thinking courses. You, you can surely learn to think positively, but it doesn't stop negative thoughts from recurring. Just as like, if you learn to speak Spanish, you won't forget English, you know, it's still there. Um, Do you think that means cavemen and women of that era were just all anxious all the time? <laughs> I, I very much doubt it because the, you know they uh, they didn't have the same sort of sophisticated language that we have today. Uh, you know we are just embedded. We're, we're constantly bombarded through the news, through media, through books, through stories, through the amount of talk that we do uh, to these scary ideas. Uh, the, the world is. A dangerous place, but it's massively um, the dangers of it are magnified uh, so much by the the media that we're surrounded by and immersed in. As a caveman, you know, it was dangerous when you went on a hunt, but the rest of the time it was probably <laughs> pretty much okay, you know. So, uh, so if we take these diffusion strategies, which which are about how do people kind of lessen the impact of when they're having unhelpful thoughts and emotions. How do they unstick themselves? From the work you do in ACT, Russ, what would be your top strategies that you think are useful for people to test out and try out when it comes to that unsticking or diffusion? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of um, 
I, I'm glad you're using, uh, you're talking about helpful and unhelpful thoughts because it's not really about positive and negative. Uh, you know, positive thoughts can be really unhelpful if, if the positive thought is, I'm a really good driver, I can drive when I'm drunk. You know, uh, if you get hooked by that thought, you're in trouble, right? Uh, on the other hand, a negative thought like, oh, this big black mole on my arm, that looks dangerous. Uh, I better get it checked out, could be cancer. That's a really helpful thought. So um, the, again, we're back to this. This thing is, if I let this thought guide what I do, is it is it going to be helpful? Um, and probably the simplest way of unhooking from your thoughts is just noticing and naming them. So it uh, begins by noticing the thought that's showing up, and then in a non-judgmental way, naming it. So uh, you know, I am noticing a thought about, or I am having a thought that. So, for example. You mind saying, oh, God, I'm such a loser. And then you might say, ah, I am noticing the thought, I'm a loser. Or here's my mind telling me I'm a loser. Or here's the loser story again. Can we get your listeners to actually try this so they can see it for themselves? Would that be okay? Yeah, abso- Absolutely. All right. Well, if you're listening to this, then bring to mind a kind of nasty, you know, self-judgmental thought that your mind often says to you, you know, I'm fat, I'm stupid, I'm a loser, I'm not as smart as other people, I'm a fraud, whatever it is. Pick one of the, the, the judgments that recurs a lot of the time. And the aim in this exercise, you know, we're not going to debate whether it's true or false or try and push it away. We just want to learn to step back and see it as a thought to see what it is. It's words and pictures in your head. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll stick with words for the time being. So what I'm going to ask you to do is bring this thought to mind, you know, I'm an idiot, or, or, and buy into it for about 10 seconds, really buy into it, believe it as much as you can. I'm a loser, I'm an idiot, I'm too fat. Buy into it, believe it. Really get hooked by it. Really get caught up in it. Okay, And when you can kind of feel that it's hooking you, that you're getting pulled into it, it's, it's stressing you out a bit. Now, silently repeat to yourself with these words in front, I am having the thought that. So you say to yourself, I'm having the thought that I'm a loser, or I'm having the thought that I'm a bad mother. And just notice what effect that has. And now try it one more time, and the phrase is a bit longer this time. The phrase is, I notice I'm having the thought. So say to yourself, I notice I'm having the thought that I'm a bad mother. I notice I'm having the thought that I'm incompetent. Uh, And did you try that, Jackie? Yeah, and you chose my thought. As I'm sitting here working with my baby crawling around me. And I want to know what the function is of the word notice, because obviously the more words you put in front, the less distress it causes. So what's the functionality of the word I know I notice in there? Yeah, well, so most people find that when you just kind of use the first phrase, I'm having the thought that, it gives them a little bit of separation, a sense of stepping back from the thought. It's like, oh. You know, you kind of start get off the hook a little bit. It's not hooking you so much. And most people find when they add in the second phrase, you know, I notice, it helps them kind of step back a bit further. It's, oh, I'm actually noticing this thought showing up. 
So um, that's usually the first diffusion skill that I teach people. It's, it's very, very simple. And, you know, 49 out of 50 people will find that there's an immediate kind of uh, a sense of uh, unhooking or stepping back from the thought. It starts to lose some of its impact. Um, and can you and use that technique, Russ, with feelings as well as thoughts? So I notice sure. I'm feeling anxious or I'm noticing that I feel blue today or etc. Yeah, you can use it with thoughts, feelings, emotions, memories, urges, cravings, you know, even like cravings for chocolate or a cigarette. I notice I'm having a craving to smoke. What happens is as well as it helps you kind of step back from the the stuff that's going on inside you, whether that be thoughts or feelings, but it also switches you off automatic pilot. You're now starting to notice what's going on. Uh, and what happens then is you've got more choice over what you do. When you're on autopilot, your thoughts and feelings jerk you around like a puppet on a string. You know, the urge to smoke or eat chocolate or drink beer or, you know, yell at the kids or do anything, uh, it just kind of jerks you around on automatic pilot. But if you can go... If you stop and actually notice that urge and notice where it is in your body and notice what it's like, you, uh, you start to kind of uh, have more control over your actions about what you do in response to it. So noting is one diffusion technique. What are the other goodies? Well, so, so uh, yeah, noting by which you mean noticing and naming. So you kind of yeah, put them into one. I like it. Sorry, um, I'm a psychologist. There's my psycho babble. I try really hard not to do that on here. <laughs> it's all good. Um, you know, uh, another another thing is just normalizing. Uh, just uh, just kind of acknowledging to yourself it's completely normal to have these thoughts. Everybody has them. Uh, you know, whether they're self-judgmental thoughts, whether they're worries about the future, whether they're dwelling on the past, whether it's predicting the worst, they're you know, any kind of thought you can think of is basically a normal human thinking process. Um, uh, sometimes we feel guilty. You know, I find this particularly when clients are having uh, thoughts about leaving their marriage or when they're having thoughts about uh, being suicidal. People often feel ashamed or guilty of having those thoughts. And I like to kind of say, well, you know, your mind is basically a problem-solving machine. And it, uh, when you're facing problems, it generates solutions. And your mind doesn't stop to think about whether these are good solutions or not. It just generates them. It puts them out there. So if you're having troubles in your relationship, one of the solutions your mind is going to generate is leave the relationship. Um, you know, you, you don't have to feel guilty that your mind's coming up with solutions. What you need to do is have a look at those solutions and see if they're good ones. Sometimes leave the relationship is a good solution, but sometimes a lot of the time it's not, you know, same with suicidal thinking, you know, about one in two people will become actively suicidal at some point in their life for a period of two weeks or more. And, uh, you know, often clients are very worried about these suicidal thoughts and, uh, you know, part of uh, the therapy is kind of recognizing this is your mind problem solving. The, the problem here is life is very, very painful for you. There's all sorts of really difficult stuff going on. The solution your mind comes up with is kill myself and stop the pain. 
now, if we want to build a richer, more meaningful life, then that's not a very good solution. But let's just acknowledge your mind's just doing its job here. So kind of normalizing it, recognizing that actually your mind, when it's doing all of this unhelpful stuff, is in its own way actually trying to help you. It's uh, all the things that we do, worrying and self-criticism and judgment, are actually your mind trying to take care of you and protect you. There's two things in there, Russ, isn't there? One is an acknowledgement, really, that we're not all that special as people, <laughs> you know, that normalising. <laughs> so if I'm having these unhelpful thoughts, well, so, so are a lot of other people and it's not just me. And, um, you know, I think that can be quite a hard thing sometimes for people to acknowledge that it's the, not the uniqueness that's causing those perhaps unhelpful th- th- thoughts or worries. <laughs> Well, it's it's one of the nice things about running acting groups. Everyone in the group gets to see that we've all got very, very similar thoughts. And, you know, one thing that would uh, is kind of quite different f- with an act therapist as regards to many other th- types of therapists is that an act therapist is likely to share their own thoughts with the client to kind of normalize you know, uh, I often say to clients, the things your mind says to you are so similar to the things my mind says to me. You know, my mind calls me fat and old and boring and stupid and, you know, uh, says I can't fit in and I'm a, a loser and all this kind of stuff. Um, the, the, it's, it's, uh, but these days, because I've been practicing act for so long, most of the time I'm able to, to recognize that when it happens and, ah, here's that old story again. Oops. Oh dear. What all happened good. Keep talking. We just uh, want more toys. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's also... That's interesting though, isn't it? Because many psychologists, psychiatrists, doctors in their training are taught are taught to not share, are taught that self-disclosure is a bad thing. And you know, I remember us in my in my interview for an internship. So I was a trainee psychologist and you know, going for one of the positions within the DHB, which are quite hard to get. And and the interviewee said, you know, what's your view on self-disclosure, Jackie? And I and I gave the non-script answer, which was actually if it's beneficial for the client, then that's really useful. But the decision-making process for the therapy is who am I sharing this for, myself or the client? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting. It's sort of um, seeing you there. Your viewers obviously can't see this, but it's very cute watching you uh, playing around with your little baby and the baby's trying to grab your microphones there and making all these noises. And yet you're able to engage in the interview with me. You're kind of um, and, and this is actually what we're often doing with our mind. A lot of the time, the mind is like a little baby that's just trying to get our attention in various ways. Uh, so, uh, and, uh, and we can learn how to kind of acknowledge, oh, okay, here's my mind wanting my attention. And at the same time, focus my attention on what's important and what I need to do right now. And of course, if my mind's telling me something very important, just like if your baby's telling you something really important, then you can tune in and uh, pay attention to that. Uh, But if it's just kind of doing its normal attention grabbing stuff, we can just let our mind babble on in the background like a baby in an interview and, and focus on the task at hand. 
you can see how smart Dr. Russ Harris is and how good he is at using metaphors. And if you've read his books, you'll know that. And, you know, one of my favourite metaphors I often speak with clients about is yours, which is you can walk around with your thoughts and feelings like a book jammed up in your face or you can lay it on your lap. And I think that's what you're trying to say with all the babbling around, you know. Can you hold Can you hold them but still see the world around you and live in it rather than kind of being, being cloaked or blind by the hard stuff, which then blocks your view to what else is out there to the possibilities in life to seeing things in new ways etc yeah absolutely you know uh, uh, and uh, I mean just going back to the other point that uh, about self-disclosure with clients uh, you know I find that sometimes my clients are, are quite surprised they're, they're like you know oh, but you're an author you're a doctor you're a you know a famous person you know what, how can you have <laughs> <laughs> how come you've got all these negative thoughts? And I'm like, well, you know, because I'm a human being, we all have them. But uh, but with practice, you can get a whole lot better at unhooking from them. So uh, I, I still do at times get hooked by these thoughts and jerked around by them, but much less often than I did 10 years ago, you know, or 15 years ago. Uh, I'm much better at going, oh, there's that story. I know that one. Uh, thanks, mind. You know, one of my favorite diffusion techniques is thanking your mind with a sense of playfulness and humor. It's got to be done in a playful, humorous way. You just kind of thank your mind for what it's giving you right now. Yeah, oh, thanks, mind. Thanks for sharing. Oh, you're doing a lousy interview, Rush. You sound stupid. Thanks, mind. Thanks for sharing, you know, and you don't get into a debate with it. Your mind goes, well, you can do that diffusion technique, but you're still an idiot. Thanks, mind. Thanks for sharing, you know. Well, 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 that was my second point, which my uh, non-mum but work brain is now catching up on. So one is we're not so special, but but two is actually our words or our thoughts are not facts. They're just words strung together, um, you know, as you're saying. So, yep, I can thank my mind. It's doing its job. It's helping me problem solve, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's factual or they're the decisions that I need to make. Going back to your examples about leaving a marriage or having suicidal ideation or thoughts, which is, yep, I can notice them. My brain is trying to help, but it doesn't mean it's a solution and it doesn't mean it's fact. Okay, that's your baby banging. Uh, just is. to clarify, <laughs> it's not you banging your head on the desk. Um, <laughs> no. So when we look at those diffusion techniques, Russ, we've got I can notice and name them, or I can note them if you want to use my psychobabble jargon. Um, I can normalize and go, I'm not so special or unique. Actually, lots of people have these really unhelpful thoughts. That's part of being human. Mm -hmm. You can name stories like, that's my, I'm fat story that's my I'm not good enough story that's my I always come last story whatever it is can you name the story because it is just a story often yeah. Um, oh, yeah. might, yeah. might oh, yeah. have lots of meaning for you but it is just a story yeah. um, normally I have a babysitter listeners today it just didn't uh, quite work out um, <laughs> we're being flexible Another, yeah. uh, isn't, isn't it lucky that this this webinar, I mean, this uh, podcast is all about acceptance? There you go. I know. A, we, maybe I'll put it up as a video and people can see this uh, uh, hilarious <laughs> situation going on in the background. There's the thanking your mind. And another technique that I have used with clients, which they've found very effective, is using imagery to do something with those thoughts. So can you picture the thoughts and words in your head and can you blow them up or build a wall between you and the thought or is there something you can do that helps you change your visual relationship with that thought? 
yeah. Uh, so there's there's lots of. I mean, there's kind of meditative exercises where you you know imagine leaves floating down a stream and you put your thoughts onto the leaves and you kind of watch them, or you imagine clouds floating across the sky and you put your thoughts onto the clouds and watch them drifting by. Um, you can uh, you know imagine them as pop-ups on on a, on a website or as uh, little adverts on your mobile phone or you know spam emails that are popping up uh, i mean you can really uh, you imagine them as um uh, writing in the sky behind an aeroplane or yeah you, you the sky's the limit and anything that helps you kind of just imagine your thought and see it as uh, as an object can help you to unhook from some way. You can put them on as as frosting or icing on top of a cake, or you can imagine them as pictures on the t-shirts of joggers running through the park. Um, the um, uh, uh, what you do want to make sure though is there's a danger if your imagery involves getting rid of the thoughts, then there's a danger that you're going to have a rebound effect. So, um, you know, you, you, the, the better thing would be to build a wall and then have your thoughts as stickers on the wall, as posters on the wall, rather than hiding behind it. Um, or, you know, if you're going to blow them up, also then reassemble them and bring them back because we don't want the idea that these thoughts are bad, dangerous things that we have to try and get rid of. We want the idea that they're words and pictures and it's okay to have them there. So what so, would a rebound um, effect look like, Russ? Well, so uh, basically the thought would go away in the short term and what you'd find is over time um, it would come back with a greater and greater frequency and intensity. Um, so, you know, in, in traditional CBT, we're talking about earlier, they, uh, you know, they used to talk about thought stopping when a thought would show up, you'd snap an elastic band or you'd shout stop, or you'd imagine a red stop sign. And, uh, no one should be recommending that technique anymore because the research is so clear in the short term, it makes the thought go away, but in the long term, it comes back with greater and greater frequency and intensity. So, you know, um, it's, uh, we do want to play around with these thoughts and, visualization can help us play around with them and experience that they are words and pictures. We can shrink them down, make them big, change the color and so forth, but always wanting to bring them back at the end and have them present so we can see we can have our thoughts here, just like you've got your baby there in your arm and you're still here with me doing this interview. You know, we don't have to get rid of the baby uh, in order to carry on doing what's important right now. So, Russ, if people are able to take on these diffusion techniques, uh, practice them, utilize them, have them become kind of more autopiloted or habited, I suppose, in their life, how do you see the benefits then for people that really take these skills on, on board? And as you talk to our listeners, I'm just going to go and get some crackers for all that and come back and then be quiet. <laughs> Okay, well, I can say whatever I want now because uh, <laughs> Jackie's gone off with the baby. So uh, here's a few jokes. No. Um, we can, uh, you know, the, we, we've been talking about uh, working with thoughts, but we can do the very same things with, with our feelings, emotions, sensations in our body and kind of noticing and naming those feelings. Uh, here's anger, here's sadness, here's anxiety. Um, 
And in the same way that in diffusion, we start to kind of notice that our thoughts are words and pictures. When we're working with feelings and sensations, we notice where they are and what they're like. What am I noticing in my chest? What am I noticing in my tummy? Uh, What am I noticing in my arms and legs? And in the same way that in diffusion, we're aiming to, to just try and allow our thoughts to be there without getting into a struggle with them, without trying to make them go away, just letting them be part of what's here in the present moment. We're saying, aiming to do the same things with our feelings and our emotions. And one way that people find it useful to do that is to just to sort of breathe into a feeling. So I take a slow, deep breath and I breathe into my anger or my anxiety. I notice that tightness in my chest. I notice those knots in my stomach and I breathe in and I open up and I allow it to be there and I acknowledge, okay, here's anxiety or here's tightness in my chest. And there's kind of a, a sense as we do that of, uh, again, unhooking from that feeling. It's not jerking us around so much. It's there and it's unpleasant, but I don't have to let it control what I do with my arms and my legs. So there's feelings here, there's thoughts here, and there's my arms and my legs and my body here. And I can do stuff with, with my body and do my arms and my legs, the actions I take, the words that I say. Right here, right now, I can do stuff that's important, meaningful, and life-enhancing. So um, those skills where we just kind of allow our feelings to be present and breathe into them and let them be there, we call those acceptance skills. And acceptance and diffusion go hand in hand. We can think of acceptance and diffusion both in terms of opening up, allowing your thoughts and feelings to be as they are in this moment without getting swept away by them, without fighting with them, without struggling with them, just allowing them to come and stay and go in their own good time while we focus on what's important right here, right now. And I know, Russ, acceptance is a critical component component of emotion regulation and emotion regulation is really important for well-being or resilience or being able to navigate life's challenges whatever word you want to use Uh, but it's something that people find really hard and I know when I've run workshops with many people we do some similar work where we work with people in organizations and emotion regulation is something I talk about a lot that acceptance but is is often uh, what trips people up or what they find really difficult uh, kind of tackling. Yeah, I would say it's the hardest skill in the whole ACT approach um, because nobody likes pain. We don't like painful feelings most of the time. Sometimes we actually pay good money to have them. We'll go and see a horror movie because we want feelings of fear and anxiety or we'll go and see a a drama because we want to feel sad and cry. But most of the time we don't like uh, painful feelings and most of the time all we want to do is get rid of them. So the idea of actually kind of opening up and allowing painful feelings to be present is so counterintuitive and so countercultural. You know, Western society is all think positive, be happy, feel good, don't worry. Uh, And so certainly in the ACT approach, we need to have a good reason. Why would we bother to open up and make room for painful thoughts and feelings? How is that going to help me 
why would I bother to do that? Uh, and so this is where the values come in. The only point of learning how to open up and make room for difficult feelings and let them be there is so that I can live my values, be the person I want to be, act effectively in the world. If I kind of want to do the stuff that's important in life, that's going to mean there will be all sorts of uncomfortable feelings that go with it. You can't have a, a baby without having uncomfortable feelings. Uh, if personal growth involves stepping out of your comfort zone and all sorts of discomfort, uh, uh, the more avoidant I am of painful feelings, the smaller my life gets. I start dropping out of all sorts of important areas of life, avoiding challenges, avoiding difficulties, avoiding the stuff that I know could improve my life because I'm not willing to have all the uncomfortable feelings uh, that go with it. And not I mean, only does sure. the good stuff shrink, the hard feelings or the, or the unhelpful feelings and thoughts get bigger. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, this is what we see in anxiety disorders. The, the problem with anxiety disorders is that the name makes it sound like anxiety is the problem. But anxiety is a normal human emotion that everybody has. What, what creates an anxiety disorder is a life that revolves around trying to avoid anxiety. The more my life becomes around avoiding anxiety, the more I'm likely to have a disorder. You know, social anxiety disorder, I don't like the feelings of anxiety that show up when I socialize, so I start to avoid socializing. Or I start taking drugs and alcohol so that I can suppress those feelings when I am socializing. And the more I do that, the more I start to develop social anxiety disorder. But if I can learn how to have my anxiety and live my values around connecting and being, uh, you know, sociable and friendly and learn to focus my attention on the other person in a social situation rather than focusing my attention on my feelings, then I no longer have an anxiety disorder. Ross, I have so many uh, questions I want to ask here, so I'm going to try and do them uh, in the best chronological order that I can. So if we're now looking at ACT, which is this partnership between uh, reducing that impact of negative thoughts and feelings and discovering what you value, we've talked about diffusion and acceptance as hand-in-hand uh, -hand techniques to help us reduce that impact uh, of the challenging bits to life or the negative thoughts and, uh, and feelings. That second half then of the, of the equation, which is discovering your values, knowing what's meaningful to you so you can purposefully choose to uh, take actions and forge a pathway forward for yourself. I've asked many people this question, but I'd be interested in your answer, which is how the heck do you work out what you value? Because that's bloody hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's. Uh, I ask people usually just to think about uh, some sort of quality time you spent with someone that you love recently, you know, uh, so I'll ask your listeners to do this right now. Just think about uh, something you did with somebody that you love recently that you enjoyed that was quality time. Uh, remember what that was like and then have a look at yourself in that memory. Uh, how were you interacting with the other person? Were you being loving or kind or caring or fun or sexy or intimate or courageous? Were you being receptive, open, warm? You know, what, what were the qualities that you were demonstrating in that interaction? And are those qualities that reflect the sort of person you want to be? Does that reflect how you would like to be in your relationships with others? And if so, well, what you're describing there are values. Values are how you want to behave in the world. Uh, 
you know, uh, how you want to treat yourself or others or the world around you. And you can, uh, you know, do that same uh, little versions of that exercise in any relationship. I just asked you to pick someone that you love, but you could also do that in terms of your relationship with your body. Remember a time when you were treating your body the way you really want to. You could do this in your relationship with your work. Remember a time when you were at work kind of treating your work the way you really want to treat it? What are the qualities that you're showing? Are you being efficient? Are you being focused? Are you being enthusiastic? Are you being creative? Uh, and as you start to explore that, um, you will start to tap into uh your, your values, your desired qualities. Uh, often described values as what you want to bring to the table of life. You know, uh, you know what, what, are the, what do you want to put into the world? Is it about being loving, kind, caring? You know, as, a, as I watch you <laughs> through this Zoom call, you know, I can see there are times here that you're being very... Well, let me ask you, Jackie. You know, you've got... The, what's, what's the name of your little baby there? Orla. Orla. Uh, so right now, uh, you know, what what qualities are you bringing into the relationship with Orla right now? Oh, well, 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 viewers, I've got Orla on my lap. I've got headphones on. She's eating her crackers and her Mandarin as we speak. And actually, I've just been kissing the top of her head as you've been speaking, which people won't have heard because I've been on mute. But, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting what qualities am I bringing, calm, loving, safe, um, yeah. and that's really important to me as a mum. But looking at values and, and helping decipher what my values are to make decisions in life has been really important to me personally in the last year. Um, my family have had lots of stressful events happen. We've been trying to work out where to live for, the, you know, all his first nine months of her life. We were living in a city without any family support, which was really tr tricky and kind of against one, you know, one of my core values of family, um, which put me at a real dissonance with myself. You know, this is what I, this is what I value, but I'm not living that way. And, um, you know, so I've been on a huge discovery, self-discovery around values. And I actually used values cards to help me with that. So my, my mum is also a psychologist for us. And um, <laughs> she, had this, she had this, you know, and my dad's a social worker. Welcome to the family. Uh, and she has this pack of values cards. And my husband and I did the exercise last year where you have to sort these cards until you definitely value them. Maybe you value that and you don't value those. And, you know, out of like 100 cards, you whittle it down to, to five um, and actually my top value out, out of those was freedom. And I never would have picked that if someone just asked me to self-generate values. And I think that's quite a human quality that we often are better at seeing things on a list than just generating from, from what we know. And that freedom was, uh, it's freedom to um, live li live life so that was financially where will we have freedom it was freedom to have fun with my family where will we have support so that my husband and I can go on date nights and still have a relationship whilst being parents for example um yeah. so that I found a really help helpful exercise and you know it's really interesting what you've said Russ because last week I spoke to um Randy Patterson from from uh, Canada who wrote how to be miserable in your 20s and and his technique was look at somebody you admire and what do you admire in them and you've now given listeners the opposite what do you might admire in yourself at certain times so I think there's kind of a plethora of ways you can get to your values 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I often uh, use that same one, you know, look at, look at role models. Uh, who do you know in the world, uh, in your own personal life or through uh, TV or even through fictional books and movies? What are their qualities? Do you see any of those qualities in yourself? If so, would you like to start bringing them more into your day or if not would you like to start developing them you can you know packs of values cards or there's all, all sorts of uh, if you <laughs> if you just do a google search list of values you'll find lots of lists of values and you can go through them and just pick the ones that resonate with you you know one of the important things with values is that there's no such thing as right or wrong values they're like your taste in pizza or your taste in ice cream or your taste in music they can't be right or wrong. It's about just what values you want to live. What are the qualities you want to bring to your actions on a day-to-day basis? And uh, I often describe values as a bit like continents on a globe of the world. Uh, no matter how fast you spin that globe of the world, you can't see all the continents at the same time. There's always some at the front and some at the back. Uh, so you know, throughout the day, some values are going to be coming to the front and others will be going to the back. There may well be values that when you're at work are at the forefront, and when you come home from work, they may kind of go to the back and other values may come uh, to the front. Um, But there may also be some core values that are there at the front all the time. It it varies enormously. God, you're good. You're so good with metaphors, Russ. I love it. (laughs) It's so helpful to, to picture that because... You know, I think there's this misconception that your values remain static no matter what context you're in. And what you're saying is you might have values, but in different situations, maybe they switch order of priority. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and it's also different values in different relationships. So, for example, let's suppose in your closest relationships, you have values around being loving and caring. Now, let's suppose, uh, you know, Suppose you have a relationship with your parents and they are hostile, mean, abusive. You may actually cut those people out of your life because you've got other values around self-care and self-respect that may come to the front in that relationship and being loving and caring may go to the back. Uh, But meanwhile, all the other relationships in your life, you may still have loving and caring being at the front. And then let's suppose your parents, you know, have, they survive a car accident and uh, they have a near-death experience that transforms them into warm, loving people. Uh, And then you may uh, invite them back into your life, you know, so it's, it's always a balance, you know, and and in any relationship, you've got to find a balance. There's uh, values around how you want to treat yourself in this relationship, self-care, and self-love and self-respect and values around how you want to treat the other person in this relationship. So Russ, if I've worked out my values and perhaps I need to keep a constant eye on them, you're saying, because they might shift and change based on what's going on in the world and my life around around me over time, but perhaps... Yeah. Uh, you know, I often talk about flavoring and savoring. So, you know, as you go through the day, it's nice to just each morning pick two or three values that you just want to sprinkle into your day to give it a flavor of those values. You might say today, you know, I'm going to work on kindness and giving, you know, and just look for little opportunities throughout the day to sprinkle in bits of kindness and giving. And, and then uh, when you, when you do flavor your interactions with those values, savor it. What's it like to be doing this? Let's kind of appreciate this moment. Here's a moment of kindness or giving, uh, or here's a moment of loving and connection. 
Uh, and and you can you can mix it up from day to day. You could pick a couple of values you want to work on for a day or for a week or for a month. Uh, you know, but um, just being conscious and aware of of the values you want to bring into play uh, makes it far more likely that you will actually start living those values. So if you're diffusing, you're accepting, you're flavoring, you're savoring, what does the research show are the benefits, Russ, of living living with ACT, perhaps at the core of how you're being? Well, that's a great question. There's, uh, you know, there's over 3,000 published studies now on ACT uh, with over 300 randomized control trials, which are the, the gold standard of scientific research, showing its uh, benefits with everything from, you know, depression, anxiety disorders, psychosis, addiction to, um, you, you know, um, uh, better performance at work, better sports performance, to better relationships, to increased confidence, to increased uh, well-being, to you know, uh, kicking habits such as smoking and drinking, uh, even you know, for losing weight, which is an incredibly difficult. Uh, uh, you know, thing to, to deal with. Uh, um, as, uh, so, so it just seems to be beneficial for, for such a vast range of problems that humans deal with. It helps people reduce suffering and increase well-being. One of my questions, Russ, about ACT always, and I'm so <laughs> glad I get to speak to you to ask this question, is the diffusion, the acceptance techniques are dealing with you know, what cognitive behaviour therapy would call hot thoughts or hot emotions, they're things that are on the surface, they're things that come to you. And my wonder has been if somebody finds themselves repeatedly triggered, repeatedly having the same pattern of thoughts or emotions that are really unhelpful to them, is there a need that actually you need to sort out what whatever's going on at a core level, core stories, and actually try and shift and tackle that rather than only sitting at a diffusion or acceptance level? Yeah, you know, so this is why it's called acceptance and commitment therapy. So there's a commitment to action. You know, uh, if there is something going on in your life, if there's a relationship issue or a work issue that, that's repeatedly triggering uh, difficult thoughts, feelings, emotions, memories, then committed action to do something about it. You know, it's not passive acceptance therapy, committed action to work on that relationship or work on that issue at work or, or work on changing the situations. Um, that commitment may also mean uh, that you, a uh, commitment to really work on developing the skills that are going to help you deal with those triggers too. Um, it's, uh, so for example, um, our, our, our upbringing, our childhood uh, will influence those patterns of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that show up in relationships. Uh, you know, if, uh, if, if you've had uh, um, relationships with your caregivers growing up that were problematic, then when similar problems show up in your adult relationships, it can trigger these very difficult thoughts, feelings, emotions, and patterns of behavior. 
you can spend a lot of time analyzing those difficult relationships in your childhood and get insight into that, but it's not going to magically stop it from happening. What you're going to need to do is kind of commit to really working on developing new ways of dealing with those relationship issues and new ways on dealing with those thoughts, feelings, emotions, and memories. So working on self-compassion, working on grounding techniques to ground and center yourself, um, at the same time as learning new skills to communicate in your relationship, talking assertively or talking calmly or, uh, you know, communication skills, negotiation skills that are actually going to help you build a better relationship. So it's not like uh, you can just read a book and this stuff will just be magically fixed. There's a commitment to doing the ongoing hard work of developing the important skills necessary to work on your inner world and to work on your outer world. So there's that combination of old old stuff and new stuff. How do I manage the old and how do I, nav- how do I navigate the present? I, I suppose where my thinking is for that old stuff that, you know, people that have had experiences in their life through their childhood that has helped form their stories of themselves, which often were adaptive at the time but become non-helpful as they grow up or the context changes. Hello, Ola. So, some of those, some of those techniques, as you say, are how do I be kind and gentle to myself? Perhaps when that raises its head, have compassion for myself or have compassion for my inner child about how they manage that that time. How do I help lower the distress by grounding? But is there all, hopefully, Ola is developing a uh, helpful, a helpful inner child story as we speak. Um, that's the laugh. So maybe. But my, but my question is: Is, is there something in is there something in, in challenging those old stories or trying to shift and change them? Or are your techniques basically learning to just ma- manage them better? Well, what we uh, find is as people do act, it's like the, the old stories, they continue to show up, but they they lose a lot of their impact. And what, what happens is you start developing new stories on top of the old ones, as you, we haven't really talked about self-compassion, but that's a big part of the app model too, kind of acknowledging your pain and your hurt and your suffering and responding to yourself with kindness uh, through kind words and kind deeds and kind gestures. And as you start to, to really practice self-compassion, you, you form a new relationship with yourself. You, you're kind of a, a report, uh, you know, a kind of supportive, healing, caring, uh, warm, friendly relationship. Uh, relationship with yourself. And uh, as you start living your values and getting in touch with your values, you start to develop a new story about yourself, about who I want to be and about what matters to me. Uh, And that doesn't get rid of the old stories. They're still there, but you have new stories in addition. Um, And so you start to get a, a richer view of yourself, if you like. It's not all negative and all wrong, but nor is it this kind of positive affirmation stuff that's so popular out there where you try to focus on all your strengths and all your positives and build up this positive self-image. It's not that either. It's a kind of realistic appraisal of myself with my strengths and my weaknesses, uh, acknowledging my pain and my difficulty, acknowledging that self-judgment and self-criticism is part of being human, 
but also recognizing I can respond to that self-judgment and self-criticism with self-kindness and self-compassion. Uh, and uh, we start to kind of develop a, a, a deep sense of, of self-acceptance, I guess, if you like, and, and self-compassion. Uh, that, that's very different from anything we could hope to achieve by rehearsing positive affirmations and uh, trying to build up our self-esteem through focusing on our good points. And I imagine like all new skills, Russ, that will feel weird and alien-like when you start if you have never treated yourself with self-compassion. But the more you stick at it and the more you try, uh, then you actually might be able to form more of a habit out of it. Some people uh, react very negatively to self-compassion when they're first introduced to it. You know, uh, sometimes it's because they think it's a, a religious thing, um, but more commonly, uh, it, it uh, it's like, oh, you know, isn't that just having a pity party? That's just, uh, you know, being soft. That's being weak. Um, they, you know, and so usually it takes a little bit of explaining to people for them to even become open to the concept of it. You know, it's not self-pity. It's not being weak or being soft. It's just acknowledging that life is painful and, and, and being kind, you know, you, you, that's what you do for your friend, right? If your friend was in great pain, you would acknowledge that, that it's really difficult and you'd be there in a kind way. Um, uh, Russ, if, if somebody has been stuck in their old stuff for a long time and can't mm. seem to get out of it, um, have you got a practical first step people can try which might help them in that journey of you know, being able to separate themselves from all those old stories or start to build new stories uh, for themselves? Well, yeah, I, again, the first step would be uh, just noticing and naming, here's this old story. I know this one goes right back to my childhood. I've heard this uh, a million times inside my head. Here it is. I know this one. I mean, that's another diffusion technique is just kind of, go, ah, I know this one. Here's that one again. Ah, here it is again. You know, uh, and again, it's like... Um, the most uh, you can think about these self-judgmental, self-critical stories as as your your mind's misguided attempt to try to help you be better. You know, your mind's like one of those old school teachers that thinks that whacking you and yelling you and humiliating you is going to help you to be a good student. Um, it's uh, so when your mind's beating you up on this stuff and criticizing you, the underlying intention is to help you do things better or to be a better person. It's just a very, very ineffective way of, of motivating change. We've got something that's much better motivating change. You can say, what's my mind giving me a hard time about here? Is it, is it telling me there's something that I, I need to do differently here? Is it warning me of something bad that's going to happen uh, if I don't change my behavior? And if the answer to that is yes, then let's come back to my values and use those as my motivator. Well, what is it that I want to do differently here? You know, what is it that I, I want to change in my behavior? What is it that I need to do differently so that uh, I get better outcomes in life? Uh, using a balcony view is such a therapy technique, isn't it, Russ? And often using a balcony view of, of context, which is when you're in a situation, can you stand above and look at it? But what you're talking yes, about is yes. use a balcony view of your own brain and your own body, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The balcony 
That's a, that's a good metaphor. Uh, and so this is kind of why, you know, in ACT, it's, it's both the mindfulness stuff we've been talking about, the kind of diffusion and acceptance, um, but it's also about the values and committed action. It's, uh, it is, I, you know, if my mind's beating me up about something, usually there's something underneath it worth listening to. It, uh, you, I often use the uh, the metaphor of, you know, you can motivate a donkey with a carrot or a stick. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, you motivate a donkey with a stick, you whack it, it will carry your load to, to escape the stick. But over time, you end up with a battered, bruised donkey. Um, if you motivate a donkey with carrots, carries your load and you give it a carrot, then over time you end up with a really happy, healthy donkey with really good night vision. Uh, and uh, what happens is those kind of really harsh, negative, self-judgmental stories, that's, that's our mind trying to motivate us with the stick. And, you know, sometimes it works. Sometimes you really get stuck into yourself and it actually kicks your ass into action. Uh, but um, a lot of the time, that form of motivation makes us depressed and stuck and anxious and just feeling bad about ourselves. It doesn't help. So we want to, well, we've got something much better than carrots. We've got values. Let's come back to that as the motivation. Okay, here's my mind beating me up, giving me a hard time. Now let's come back to what sort of person do I want to be? How do I want to treat myself? and others, what do I want to start putting into the world? And, and you know, values are very different from goals uh, in the sense that values are qualities of behavior that I can put into action right here, right now, anytime, any place. So there's something I can put into the world instantly, whereas goals are something in the future that I'm aiming for or trying to achieve that I may or may not achieve. And Russ, just to finish us off, because I'm aware of our time, and I'm sure you're a busy man with places to go, I, I just have been thinking about our our context at the moment in the world, which is there's a lot of challenge and a lot of grief going on for people, whether it's about COVID-19 itself or here in New Zealand, the economic impact has been quite significant for us. Now, where does ACT fit in with, with grief and challenge, and how can that help someone that might be in a, just a really difficult context at, at the moment? Yeah, well, so uh, again, when people are experiencing grief and loss, the uh, act stance would be to, again, self-compassion, recognize that it's completely normal to have these painful feelings and emotions when you're going through such a hard time. It's completely normal to have these negative thoughts and these cognitive processes such as worrying and rumination. Uh, you don't choose these thoughts and feelings. They just show up when life is difficult, when you lose things, when life is very challenging. So the starting point is to acknowledge that it's there, that it's normal, and uh, bring in some some kindness. What are kind things you can say to yourself? What are kind deeds you can do for yourself? You know, very often our default setting is we turn to the drugs or the alcohol, you know, do anything to try to escape our pain. Those are not kind ways of treating yourself. Those are not kind ways of treating your body. So let's kind of, e even just practicing mindfulness skills, taking up a daily mindfulness skills practice is a very kind way of responding to your own pain and suffering. And of course, it's not just self-compassion, it's also compassion for others that are uh, struggling and suffering in similar ways, especially your, your closest loved ones. So, Russ, to today, we have covered that ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, is about uh, 
being able to notice and be aware uh, and have a little bit of distance with our minds, with our bodies around kind of those unhelpful thoughts and feelings that we can get stuck in, being able to use some really uh, clever metaphorical strategies <laughs> to help us, you know, unstick ourselves from those. Uh, to be able to kind of identify and use our values as as the carrot to motivate us to to keep on with those strategies to uh, craft the life we want to kind of ho- hold us through those really cha- challenging times um, and, and that woven all through that is is this kindness to ourselves the self compassion how would you respond to a friend that perhaps is in a really kind of tough time or, or beating themselves up. Actually, how can you how can you use that kindness for you and yourself uh, as you as you navigate life? And um, which might not be something that that kind of comes naturally. And I think for many New Zealanders or many people around the world, self compassion doesn't come naturally. We're probably much more used to that pesky inner critic than we are to the self compassion. So you know, learning learning how to navigate uh, that and. You know, like all wonderful things in life, you don't suddenly wake up and have this rich, meaningful, purposeful life. You don't just get handed it on a platter. You know, it's not like the more money you have, the more more meaningful your life will be. Often, actually, it can be the reverse because people aren't actively working at it to kind of build the life they want. Um, so I think there's so many... Uh, nuggets of gold. I'm trying to. I'm trying to keep up with Russ's metaphors here to take away from today. Uh, in terms of uh, a rich and meaningful life, that doesn't mean a life that's full of happiness and joy. You know, a, a rich and meaningful life means a life with the full range of emotions, the pleasant ones and the painful ones. So, for sure, there'll be love and joy. There's also going to be fear and sadness and anger and guilt. You know. Yeah, We've got through a whole podcast without me asking you about happiness and the myths of happiness. I wonder how often that happens for you, Russ. But I want to know out of everything, the nine books you've written, the thousands of therapists you've trained, the you know, the graphic novels you've read, you know, what's the or, or try to write, what is for you the most meaningful contribution or the most satisfying thing you have done in your work? It's really my relationship with my son. You know, I mean, ACT has really helped me with all of those challenges of, of parenting uh, and, uh, you know, ongoing challenges. He's now this strapping young 14-year-old, almost 15, uh, young man, and uh, he's, he's challenging me on a daily basis. And, uh, you know, there's, there's times where I forget everything that we've been talking about in this podcast and I get hooked by my kind of, how dare you, blah, 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 blah. And I kind of, you know, all my qualities, uh, all my values as a parent fly out of the window as I kind of get jerked around by my thoughts and feelings. But most of the time, uh, I'm kind of quite quick to catch myself and unhook and make room for my anger or frustration or whatever it is and come back to my values around being calm and loving and patient. And when I do that, boy, is it useful. Is It, uh, it really helps us to have a, a good, strong relationship. So, you know, just uh, being able to apply ACT in my relationship with my son is, uh, is, is the greatest um, sense of achievement and fulfillment. 
Well, thank you so much uh, for your time today, Russ, and for and for putting up with navigating, managing, uh, speaking with me and a munchkin that has uh, made herself mm-hmm. well known uh, through today. <laughs> and um, you know, I, I'm going to walk away from today, and my flavour for the day is going to be uh, peacefulness or calm. Uh, I, it's something I have to actively work on because I move at a million miles an hour. But as a parent, I've wanted to create a home environment for all of that is calm and and oh look, there's oh. a microphone and calm and and present uh, for her. So as I leave today, out of the non-calm we've had during this hour, that is what I'm going to try and do, Russ. well i just think it's great i mean orla has given us a great metaphor for acceptance throughout this interview uh so uh, your listeners hopefully have also been practicing accepting sounds that are there in the background and and that's kind of what we need to do with our own thoughts Uh, hopefully they haven't tuned us off (laughs) so um thanks for having me Uh, my pleasure russ pleasure Thank you so much for joining us. Lovely. Thank you. I'm Jackie Maguire, and you've just finished listening to the Dr. Russ Harris Act episode of Mind Brew. Did you manage to listen through baby squeals and squawks for mum's attention? This episode was literally bursting at the seams with practical strategies that you could implement in your life right now. Can you write a list of those pesky unwanted self-beliefs that pop up in your mind or historic stories that interfere with the present? Practice noticing and naming them, plastering them to imaginary brick walls or singing them to the tune of happy birthday. Journal about times you've felt your best self across different relationships and contexts. Which of your values lie at the front of the globe when you're with your family, friends, or when you're at work? Practice responding to yourself kindly, as you would to a friend, rather than that nasty inner critic that often gets far too much showtime. So much to percolate on, so much to act on. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your network and head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate and leave a review. It's so very much appreciated. Thank you and see you again soon.